Hey there, it's Krista Scott Dixon from Stumptuous.com and this is another episode of the Stumptuous Files. Today I'm interviewing Kamal Patel from Examine.com, which is an independent unbiased encyclopedia on supplementation and nutrition. Less formally, it's known around the fitness and nutrition industry that Examine.com is the place to go if you want the latest research on supplements or just want an evidence-based recommendation that you could make to your clients or for yourself. Kamal is a pretty smart dude. He's a nutrition researcher with a master's in public health uh, and an MBA from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, He's on hiatus from a PhD in nutrition in which he researched the link between diet and chronic pain. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kamal Patel. start by asking you about your background. You come with some pretty impressive credentials. Uh, it says that you're uh, in your bio that you're a nutrition researcher with uh, a master's in public health and MBA from Johns Hopkins, and you're on hiatus from a PhD in nutrition. Uh, wow, that's, uh, that's something. So, I mean, let's start by just kind of getting to here. Take me through a little bit of your background and how you ended up where you are now. Sure. So I had the same background as most people in college. I was undecided. Um, I uh, either left or failed out of engineering. I don't remember which one. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then uh, I think uh, this my my sophomore year, um, I randomly happened to have a next door neighbor in my dorm who was a power lifter. And uh, nobody talked to him. He wasn't super friendly, but he was huge. And um, I I asked him randomly one day about lifting weights, and I went to the gym for the first time. So it turns out um, that he was an avid powerlifter, and um, he also just randomly was an age-class world record holder. So he told me right away, um, focus on what you do in the kitchen, not necessarily uh, micromanaging your reps and sets. And... That's how I got into nutrition, and uh, and eventually I got more into public health and nutrition research uh, because I figured it was sort of interesting to me and also a way to uh, possibly improve an area that isn't really a focus a lot. Um, and then a couple of years later, I ended up at examine.com, and that's what I do full-time now. So now it sounds like you were not necessarily super athletic early on. Uh, it sounds like you came to this a little bit late in life. Am I correct? Yeah. So um, first time I went to the gym was when I was, I guess, 20. Um, and I weighed 135 pounds maybe at most. Um, next two or three years, I gained 40 or 50 or too many pounds too fast. Uh, but I got a lot stronger. And then a few years after that, I was getting ready to compete for the first time um, in powerlifting, and I hurt my shoulder. The next year, I had a surgery that failed, um, and then I had a surgery with a surgical error, um, and then I had a couple more surgeries and called the whole thing off, Uh, and then that's how I chose my PhD research, which was uh, nutrition and chronic pain, Um, and it seems to be something that comes up pretty often for lifters, whether they're powerlifters, Olympic lifters, bodybuilders, strongmen, uh, because I don't think we're, or most people aren't meant to 
lift very heavy weights and then sit all day. So it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, so I keep that on the back burner and I, I always keep an eye on um, nutrition and pain research, but there's not really much of it. So hopefully there will be more in the future. Yeah, I saw that and I, and I want to come back to it, but I just want to roll back a little tiny bit and be curious about this role of public health. I, I'd be curious about, you know, what role do you think a public health perspective plays in sort of coming into the field generally, but also specifically in what you do? So I think what some people don't under, or a lot of people don't realize is the public health um, regulation and policy world kind of doesn't care about you because a lot of people are um, younger, mostly healthy. Most trials are done in people who are sicker and older. Um, so there's a little bit of a disconnect. And the first time I really realized that was well after I got a degree in public health. Um, it was around 2009 when um, the research center that I was at needed some warm bodies to help them because they had been hired to do the um, research for the 2010 vitamin D guidelines. So we had to divide out several thousands of papers and um, I was just, you know, somebody on the street. So they, they picked me up. I started going through papers. Um, we wrote a couple of meta-analyses, but what I really got out of that is to some extent, it didn't matter what we did because um, at the policy level, there were dermatologists who didn't want people to be outside as much. Um, there were people like Michael Hollick, who was the main vitamin D guy in Boston um, and maybe around the world at the time. And uh, he gave different guidelines for, um, or he said that different guidelines are okay. So the guidelines, for example, for the endocrine society were something like one or 2,000 IUs a day. Whereas for the government, um, it's more like 400 or 800 IUs. And uh, it turns out that there's sort of a reason for that. It's not just because the government's always behind. Um, the government's just trying to prevent uh, people from getting very obvious diseases, and they try to be as safe as possible or even two or three times safer. Whereas for medical societies and for uh, hospitals, wellness centers, and that kind of thing, um, it's more to feel good. So there's different levels of different vitamins and minerals that are good for different things. And um, the other thing I found out when I delved more into the public health sphere is that uh, we may think that there's a lot of evidence on a given thing, but even vitamin D, which has the most evidence of pretty much any vitamin, um, the, the one review of reviews that came out called an umbrella review, uh, I think it was last year, it actually came to the conclusion that there's not enough evidence to recommend vitamin D for almost any outcome. So I was kind of surprised because we had gone through a lot of papers that were fairly positive for bone health, um, heart health, different stuff like that. Uh, but this person, either for, for good or for bad, came to the conclusion after looking at all of the meta-analyses that uh, the evidence was overrated. So it's a, it's a bit of a push and pull. When you look at one good trial, you might think, well, I should definitely take 2,000 IUs of vitamin D because it's going to improve my immune system and I won't get colds. But the burden of evidence for public policy is extremely high. So to get above that threshold, um, it's very tough. And I don't know if most any nutrient will ever get there. Yeah, I think you're, you're raising something that is really crucial and something we'll get to in a little bit, which is really this idea of the quality of evidence and the quality of studies. But I kind of wanted to go back to something that you alluded to, which I think that people who don't work in research or in academia 
might be a bit surprised about, which is like the politics around research and the personalities in research and how research gets done and how studies get published or don't, you know, how they get rejected and reviewed and so forth. So for people who don't have a research background or an academic background, can you explain a little bit, like pull up the carpet <laughs> you know, of academia yeah. and research a little bit and just show us some of the, the bugs that might be crawling underneath? So uh, the way that I think about this is if you put yourself in the position of the researcher, then first things first is, um, you know, like a lot of people who read examine.com want to know how much protein they should eat and you know, whatever. And, and that's the same for, for every big nutrition website. Uh, you know, bodybuilding.com, precision nutrition, there's a few issues that everybody wants to know about. But if you're the researcher, you can only set up a clinical trial if you get money. So that means you have to research something that somebody wants to fund. Um, and that can get really tricky. So even the best researchers, um, like the leading protein researchers, they can't research whatever they want. And they're often funded by industry uh, because that's where the money's going to come from. You might get some funding from um, nonprofits or from the government, but oftentimes it's from industry. And then you won't necessarily get to have the sample size you want or study exactly what you want because a lot of research is for wellness. So once you get beyond that and you have some money and you set up a trial, then there's other issues. So... Um, what I like to do is go to clinicaltrials.gov um, and that's where there are some hidden gems because when you when you start a trial, then sometimes the, the trial ends up going well. You find a significant result that gets published in you know, either Leading Nutrition Journal or even JAMA or, or Annals or some other uh, high-impact journal. But a lot of the times you either have to stop the trial because of a side effect uh, too many people dropped out or the study doesn't get accepted into a journal. So there's this like uh, graveyard of of studies that didn't really go through on clinicaltrials.gov where every clinical trial has to be registered. So I didn't realize how many were out there until at that same research center I worked at. Um, one day they were like, well, you know, you five uh, have some extra time. So you're going to be contracted with the federal government to oversee clinicaltrials.gov um, and what goes in and what comes out. So we would have to get in touch with Pfizer and, you know, whatever other organizations who are doing research and say, uh, this looks suspicious, you know, is this data right? Or has this paper been published yet? Or, you know, is, is this really the sample size for this? And then a lot of the times, you know, the biggest, richest companies like Pfizer would have very basic errors. And a paper that the center put out that I wasn't involved in was um, you would think the one outcome that everybody would agree upon would be mortality, whether somebody died or not in your clinical trial. It turns out that that's not true. So different researchers define mortality in different ways. You'd think it would just be somebody died and, and that's the definition, but I guess it's not. And then also researchers can uh, sort of have it up to them whether they say that the death was due to the intervention or just due to a normal course of events. Like, for example, let's say you're testing um, ephedrine, and then somebody takes it, and then later on in the day, they cross the street and get hit by a bus. So is that random, or is it a side effect because they were feeling jittery and, you know, somehow ran across the street? It's sometimes hard to tell. 
And then sometimes a researcher might not want to attribute the death to their intervention. So things get really tricky. Um, that's why, although a lot of people don't have access to full text papers, the only way to know for sure if something is really saying what you think is to go through the full text. And it's really a slog. It's hard to get through. Um, and it's not always fun, but it's good to know a little something about research. Well, that's, that's why we have you folks to uh, to do that legwork for us from the more expert point of view. But I, I think you're also getting at something around the multifactorial nature of things too, right? Like it's very difficult to look at how a single nutrient operates in a human because humans, you know, are systems and we live in systems. Like it's just systems and systems. And so, you know, one of the challenges in nutrition research, I think you'd probably agree, is like figuring out, did this thing actually make the difference or not? And if like, first of all, was there a difference? Um, and, and second of all, was it this thing I'm looking at that made the difference? So, I mean, I think some people might not kind of get that. I mean, can you speak a little bit to the difficulty of studying this kind of multifactorial problem? Yeah. So um, a lot of the times for most people who uh, study any subject, you can somehow relate what nutrition research is like because of the multifactorial nature. So um, even if you don't know what a p-value is, then let's say, you know, I, I failed out of engineering or dropped out, can't remember, in college. So um, in like physics or math, there's a few set variables and you can figure out an exact answer to something. So um, it's both hard and easy because of that, because there's always usually always the right answer, but it can get really complicated. On the flip side is um, something like anthropology or sociology or um, a humanities uh, field of study where, like, for example, my girlfriend is a sociology professor and she knows nothing about nutrition um, and she doesn't want to know. And she'll ask, uh, you know, is this oatmeal good for us? You know, is, is this uh, glazed pumpkin chip bread good for us? And, and I always say, well, you know, there's, there is no yes or no in these areas. It's complicated. There's a lot of variables. I maybe should tell her and try to relate to her that, um, specifically like, uh, she researched, for example, education, she teaches race and gender. And those things are, are not things that you can just tell somebody affirmative action is correct or, um, you know, like uh, there, there's been tough issues for in any sporting event for um, uh, for doping for uh, who is the the South African woman in in the last Olympics or uh, Castro Semenya, I believe. Yes. Um, so that's something where I like reading the comment sections on the internet just because it um, it's entertaining, but often it's people who just uh, like stirring things up and are ignorant. And, and anytime you get into uh, issues like that, they're like, oh, well, uh, you know, the not to get into politics, but I will um, sort of sometimes the more conservative you get, the more you're like, well, I'm this is by definition right because it's listed somewhere. It's never true, whether it's nutrition or sociology or whatever. Um, there's different angles to things. So in, in that case, there's a lot of gray area for um, whether a sprinter should or should not be allowed to compete with other people and that person isn't necessarily proactively doing something wrong. Um, and then in nutrition, like uh, people will see a study about eggs 
Um, like we just uh, updated our, our egg FAQ, our eggs healthy. Uh, we probably should have labeled it something else uh, because our eggs healthy is not a question we can answer. But um, a lot of the studies are funded by, you know, the egg board and that kind of thing. And that does not at all mean that they're not, you know, correct or they're inherently wrong. But who's going to fund a really expensive study on eggs? And then if they do fund a study and then it shows that eggs were not harmful, then you still have to look another layer deeper because um, unless you put people in a metabolic ward and you measure things directly, then you're going to get into questions of uh, observing and reporting on oneself rather than the researcher doing it, who's blinded, um, you know, what types of eggs and, and all that. So there's just so many variables. Um, it's really complicated and you shouldn't necessarily look at one website like examine.com and just, you know, uh, take what we say for, for granted because we were, we hadn't updated in a couple of years in our section on, uh, eggs for people who have diabetes was wrong. Uh, but it's important to know at least a little bit about, uh, about everything really, which, which it's not a enviable thing. Cause I think, uh, nowadays it's, it's just hard to know enough about health, nutrition, your finances and all that um, just to get by. And, and I feel bad for people who have one or two jobs and have families or just people who are low on time because it's difficult. Yeah, I think you really tap into that anxiety that people have, right? I mean, if nothing can be known, like what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to eat for breakfast, right? Like I think that <laughs> that's sort of the question on people's mind. Or, yeah, and like should I eat breakfast? I know, <laughs> And and I think often, like I th you really gestured towards this feeling that people have of just feeling lost or sort of distrustful of science, right? Like, mm -hmm. well, you scientists say this thing today and this thing tomorrow, and it's just really confusing. And so, you know, how might you respond to that perspective of people saying, well, screw you scientists, like you, you're really giving me inconsistent messages, or if things can be or seem so open-ended, how can we know anything for sure? I mean, how would you address that? Well... Um, it's going to be hard to to ever get people to believe now that nutrition science is legit because there's been 20 or 30 years of seemingly uh, flip-flopping evidence. But when it, it does come up, then the first thing we say is, um, before anything, you have to realize that nutrition research, like everything else, is a very incremental process. So when you see one study reported in the media, then it's really building off many studies that have come before um, often starting with in vitro studies and then going to pilot trials and then randomized trials and then larger randomized trials and then meta-analyses. So um, it might look like something contradicts all the other evidence you know, but it usually doesn't. Usually there's some other piece of evidence that it's building off of that it agrees with. Um, and the second thing is that um, because nutrition is complicated, two studies can look to conflict, but they can both be right. So either they use different samples, like one used half women, half men, one is mostly men, um, which actually happens a lot because uh, I don't remember what the number is, something like 35, 37% of uh, sample or of people in, um, in nutrition study samples are women. So women are very underrepresented. Um, a lot of exercise studies don't have any women at all. So it's quite possible that you'll see one study with one uh, conclusion and one study with ops conclusion. And it's only because they had different ratios of women. So that's a tough issue to get around. Um, and it, it makes research more complicated, but it's something that should be addressed. And 
10, 15 years ago, the NIH said that you you need to address women in research if it's funded by the NIH. Issue is that not all research is funded by the NIH. Um, and even a few years after that, uh, people who were doing NIH-funded research were sometimes ignoring it. So it's tough, but I'd say, like, for people, you know, in my family who, who say, you know, who cares about this study because um, I'm either going to listen to my doctor or listen to some new study that I read, uh, the most visceral thing to connect to is that media spins everything, so just don't listen to the media, um, or at least take it with many grains of salt, and your doctor doesn't have enough time to read nutrition research and might not be interested in prevention so much, so take everything they say with a grain of salt, uh, but they know your medical history, so um, pay more attention to what they say. Uh, and then find something you're interested in nutrition and start from there, so... Um, a lot of people are interested in body composition, so finding out a little bit something about protein, it might springboard you into something else. Um, and it's most important to connect to what you're interested in because you're never going to pick up a biostats book and start reading that because I don't even like biostats. So um, it, unless you really, really, really love math, um, just start with something you like. That's great advice. And I just want to go back to something you alluded to a little bit earlier, which is the importance of the choice of subjects in research studies. And I mean, your your earlier comments on things like sex and gender and even race, ethnicity, um, and, and typically people think of these things as very static categories or, or very um, simplistic categories. Like, I mean, ethnicity, there's like innumerable ethnic subgroups all over the world, right? It's not just sort of a couple of buckets that we can put people mm -hmm. in. There's incredible complexity to human beings as a group. And then, of course, you have genetic variants even within um, smaller subpopulations. So um, could you talk a little bit more about the problems of subject selection in studies and, and how we should be thinking about, you know, having a little bit of a critical eye around what subjects were selected for studies and, and how that applies. I mean, one of the distinctions I'm thinking about is um, looking at a study that was done on obese, uh, postmenopausal women with type 2 diabetes and trying to apply that to myself, who is none of those things besides a woman. <laughs> you know, yep. like what are the troubles with applying those kinds of subject uh, populations? So most studies don't apply to the people who read about the studies, and most people don't know that. Um, and in terms of uh, evaluating studies, I thought that that I was pretty critical or progressive or whatever you might call it because um, I look a lot into the definitions of the populations. But um, going back to like, so I use my girlfriend as an example of um, many people who only tangentially hear about nutrition occasionally and don't proactively look into it. Like the very few times studies have come up, um, she's extremely critical of the sample participants for reasons that I would never suspect, um, or of the study itself or its language. So, um, you know, if, if I say that this study was, uh, 65% men and 35% and women, then she's automatically already not down with it because, um, you know, like who are the women are, do they define themselves as women? Is it based on sex or gender? Um, she doesn't like language used in studies, um, and uh, and I, I never think about those things. And then she doesn't like that the the evidence is sort of normative, that it's telling people what to do, 
um, or sometimes it's based on science and not on what the people are thinking, which is different than what I would think, which is I sort of want all studies to have objective measurements um, and the subjective ones are kind of flawed. So um, you can never tell how people are interpreting studies and there's no right or wrong there. But um, what I can say is that studies are never, almost never powered to look at subgroups. So um, like even the best studies, most of the best studies I've seen, uh, if I pull out the people in my age range who are men, even if they did a subgroup analysis on them to see whether the study results apply specifically to them, I've only seen a handful of studies ever that have enough people in that subgroup, so are statistically powered to find um, if the findings apply to them. So what that means is that um, you you probably have heard the, the study from several years ago uh, that 90% of medical findings are wrong or not reproducible. So I think uh, there's a lot of things wrong with that particular study, but to some extent it is true. So when you reproduce studies on a given topic, most of the time or a lot of the time, the same outcome doesn't happen. And then a lot of the time within that, the reverse outcome happens. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And there's a lot of reasons why um, studies don't have the same criteria for coming up with the study or for measuring the results. But the end result is uh, if you do a meta-analysis, which my old research center, that was the game to make the most accurate meta-analysis possible, um, I think it's actually a little bit of a sham because you lose a lot of the detail of a particular study when you pull the results. Heterogeneity between studies is a huge issue, much more so than most meta-analyses would say. And by the time a meta-analysis comes out and uh, the results are spread around media, they're usually missing one or two big studies. So um, as far as how that uh, relates to, to a given person trying to see if a study applies to them, a study is not going to apply to you. Um, really, you have to combine the gist of the study results with the mechanistic evidence. So does it make sense that this diet will work or won't work? If you've tried it for a couple of weeks, then does it work or not work with you? And have you changed other things during that time? Because if you change a bunch of things in one summer and it's like, uh, what's that thing? Summer of George and Seinfeld. And you're, <laughs> or actually he didn't do anything. Never mind. So the opposite of that, where you're trying a bunch of things at once, um, don't say that this study showed this and I tried it and it works because you kind of have to do your own N equals one study on yourself um, and hopefully try to dampen down the placebo effect as much as possible. So it can get really complicated. You know, I, I, it, I don't know how to, how to tell people exactly what to do in a few year, words because the odds are against them. Yeah, although I like your idea of this kind of like citizen science in a way, right, of, of being your N equals one and, and really understanding what your critical indicators are. And it's something we try to do with our clients a lot too, because I think uh, often people come in and they're trying to govern themselves with external advice that may or may not apply, but they don't even know how to test whether it does or not. Like, did this work? I don't know. Well, what would you look at to test it? I don't know, right? So I like where you're going here with this idea of, in a sense, becoming your own experiment, right? Really looking at, okay, what are my key indicators? How could I track them? And I don't mean like super sophisticated stuff, but like if I'm trying to lose weight, did I lose weight? <laughs> yeah. How am I sleeping? How am I feeling? If, if this is to improve my performance, is my performance improving? And um, it's, it's a little bit ironic that, that so few of us actually do that kind of research, even though we like to 
look at other research. So, but one divide I hear a lot when I work with coaches is that they feel very uncomfortable with research. Like in our level two program, I deliberately make them go and look at research studies and talk about what the study involves and what the conclusions were. And a lot of people are really uncomfortable with that. Like it just freaks, like they get to page number one and they just flip out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so a lot of them are like, well, what, you know, I'm not a researcher. I'm a practitioner. Like, why don't I just leave this to the researchers? And I mean, how would you respond to that? divide between research and practice and the assumption that like I'm a practitioner and I just don't really have to care about this. That's uh, that's something that I've seen at pretty much every con conference I've been to. So the conferences that have researchers, they get really ivory tower and, and don't get practical. And then the trainer conferences, um, you know, research is good in theory, but you don't want to read the study. So I can see that because studies are really, really, really boring um, and and it sucks. And I wish that, you know, I could back to the future and go 40 or 50 years ago and change what some of the first journals were doing. Uh, but but you can't do that. So uh, to get around that, if you're a dietitian, if you're a nutritionist or if you're a personal trainer, um, the the couple or the three instances I've had of being in that role, um, I'm not good at that role because I'm more in the research role kind of naturally. Uh, but there were things I had to do to kind of um, to get my fellow trainers and stuff sort of on board with evidence based whatever, whether it's fitness or nutrition or whatever. So the first case was, um, uh, I think, 15 years ago, I... I needed a job in the summer, so I got a personal training certification, and I got the easiest one. Um, and then I uh, I didn't work for a gym, so I I plastered um, flyers around campus, and I got two clients, and that's it. So I've only ever had two personal training clients, and the first one was a guy who had um, the only thing he told me is that he wanted to lose weight, and he was getting married. So we went through uh, five or 10 sessions and he seemed to be doing okay. And he never talked at all. And, uh, and then that was it. He just sort of stopped contacting me. So, so I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I guess maybe that was a failure or maybe he lost the weight. I don't really know what. So then um, I proactively contacted him and I was like, you know, not to bother you, but, um, but what happened? Did you lose the weight? And then he told me, um, it, it turns out that uh, he had a really specific reason for wanting to lose weight. So he was getting married, but the reason he really wanted to lose weight was um, he had, had a really bad relationship. Um, he was a, an older person, uh, so he, he tried online dating and it didn't work for years. And he was really busy. He was a corporate lawyer, and he found a woman who was very nice, the opposite of his previous failed relationship, um, who was also very busy, and they had a lot of things in common. And she was the first person who was really nice to him in a relationship. So um, she was really fit. And he wanted to show that he was sort of, uh, you know, on her wavelength. And he just wanted to lose weight. So at the wedding, um, she would she would feel like he's self-confident because he had an issue with that. So I was like, oh, wow, you know, I, I knew none of that. And uh, I would have maybe like just taught you some things. And maybe you need a gym buddy for a couple a couple tries. Um, 
so I, I went ahead and I sort of gave him a PowerPoint lecture. So what's cool is that not that he would read studies himself, but um, I found something that he could relate to, which is he was very caring and, and he wanted to help his family. So he did literally read five or 10 studies about diabetes and carbohydrate level, um, which was, you know, a, a tough thing for him to do because he didn't really have the background. But we went through it. And I don't I don't really think that's something most trainers would do even with themselves. But um, you would know better than I if, if people actually want to read studies, um, if your clients would actually want to read studies. But this guy was eternally grateful uh, because you know, as you know, there's a lot of confusion in, in the realm of how much uh, or what your carb level should be or if you really should have a specific carbohydrate level if you have diabetes. Um, and and that's, that's what he was really interested in, not himself losing weight or not his own goals or not even really his own wedding. Um, I just had to find what he was interested in. So, you know, I don't really know um, how to bridge that gap for uh, for trainers not wanting to read stuff or for clients not wanting to read stuff. But usually, there's something that people are interested enough in that you can you can get them to at least look at a paper, um, and that's kind of the gateway drug, I think. Uh, but people are never going to want to be researchers themselves, but they might read some stuff if they're interested enough. I love this story. It, it's like it captures like every theme in coaching and training, I think, which is I mean, the first thing that jumps right out at me is that often as trainers or coaches, we assume that our clients want one thing and they actually want something else. Like the motivation is something completely different and often quite existential. Like I just want love or I just want acceptance yeah. or I want to feel confident or whatever. And and so as a trainer, we might get lost in talking to them about grams of protein or whatever. And really, this person is just sitting there thinking, please make me lovable. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's such a great illustration of that concept. And I also uh, really appreciate how you allude to this idea of making research understandable and relevant. So I think the bridge there for me, if I'm understanding what you're saying, is almost being able to translate for your client. So to almost be like a prioritizer or a filter or or um, to say, hey, like this particular thing might be interesting to you and then to help them translate, like maybe not necessarily hand them the, you know, the textbook of statistical methods, but say, hey, you know, this study just came out recently. It might be interesting to you. Uh, people with your background found that if they walked 10 minutes a day, it changed their blood work. And that's kind of you. So that might interest. Like, you know, I feel like there's there's definitely a nice way to do it. So I really love that story. I think that's it's just lovely. in so many And ways. I think uh, the. The reason why it's um, possibly more likely that people read stuff now is, you know, the Internet's full of misinformation. But if you wanted to, you could find out enough to read a paper just using the Internet because some journals have good, like really intro pages on reading a study. Um, you know, we, we have a couple pages on that. And if you set out a couple hours, people are really curious and they like to learn. Uh, and and it's good. Taking advantage of that is good. But like you said, I really do think a lot of people are lonely or, uh, you know, they're stressed out. So their problem isn't losing fat necessarily or gaining muscle or uh, objective measure like that. But they they really just want to feel happier. And uh, and I didn't I didn't really realize that was the case for for many, many years until possibly three or four years ago. Um, there was a, a doctor here in San Francisco who 
goes by the unfortunate moniker of the quantified doctor, but I was working with him to um, make a program for his patients uh, where they would track things. Um, so quantified self kind of stuff. And, um, and I kept bringing up all these different measures and different integrations they could do with different um, hardware. And it turns out that the best measures were subjective ones. Uh, am I happy with what I did today? Kind of like that Ben Franklin thing, you know, when you wake up, what good can you do? Um, did I try hard today? Uh, not, you know, if you weighed yourself twice a day. And very basic things without getting lost in the weeds was the most important and these people, a lot of them were sort of on the brink because uh, the population randomly was a lot of um, drug addicts or people who had a lot of comorbidities, so uh, diabetes, heart disease, autoimmune conditions, and whatever. So the two or three people who are more like sort of pro possibly the typical person who would come to our website, um, healthier, younger people, you would think that they were the people who might benefit most from losing fat and gaining muscle, but even them... The, those two people, the one person, uh, I guess I can say everything about them because I'm not using their name. Um, their case was interesting because they had moved to a new city, which I think happens a lot with people nowadays. Uh, a lot of itinerant workers, not people who live in the same city for 10 or 20 years with the same job. He had a hard time finding friends, you know, and he was still trying to feel like he was a, a cool person. And like when he lived on the East Coast. So the major thing was getting him to accept the fact that it might take a while, not uh, eat his feelings away and that kind of thing. Um, and the other person was um, a mild case of body dysmorphia. It was a guy who was never pleased with what he looked like, even though he probably had sub 10% body fat. So luckily we had a, a psychologist on staff, but I think most trainers have to be sort of amateur psychologists in order to get to the root of what the issue is. And you probably know a shit ton more than I do about that, but I only realized a little bit ago how big of a problem that was. Yes, and also, too, I think the psychology enables people to accept whatever nutritional recommendations you make as yep. well, right? It's sort of an, it's a nice reciprocal relationship. If you understand the motivation and the people in the story, you can find ways to make nutritional recommendations or supplement recommendations more understandable to people. So yep. it's kind of a nice trade-off. I want to go back to your research now for your PhD between diet and chronic pain. I think that's something very interesting. Um, chronic pain stuff definitely runs in my family. My sister suffered with it terribly, really, for a while. Um, and so I think, you know, I'd be very curious to know. I mean, obviously, you can't give me your entire PhD thesis, but like, what are some of the highlights of what you found in your work on this? So... There's actually very little research on nutrition and pain, and I think the reason is that um, a lot of your listeners might know that nutrition research is really hard to do, because if you do a pharmaceutical study, you just give the person a pill. But if you give them a vitamin, mineral, or a diet prescription, there's a lot of interactions with things that they already eat. So unless you put them in a metabolic ward and you give them a diet and you watch them eat it, there's going to be a lot of unknowns. So that being said, if you have pain and the pain keeps going over the course of weeks or months, um, it's supposed to go away. So you've got chronic pain. So then you might wonder where it had come from. Well, a lot of the times it's repetitive stress. So, you know, people sit at their desk for uh, many hours a day. Um, and a lot of people know that shorten certain muscles and make certain muscles weak. So that's the cause of a lot of pain. But 
you literally are what you eat. And that's why nutrition and chronic pain research is so important because it's often not the things you focus on. So the amount of protein you get is a little bit important to make sure that you can heal. Other than that, not that important. The number of carbs you eat can be important for inflammation, but not quite as important as fat. So I feel like in the if it fits your macros crowd, carbs and fat are kind of the things that are focused on a lot. And then or, uh, carbs and protein and then fat, it's like, you know, oh, uh, your fat allowance or whatever incidental fat comes along with your meals um, or, you know, eat your good fats. It's just kind of it gets uh, a buzzword or two. Fat is super important for pain, uh, for your state of your gut, um, for your brain. And the reason is that uh, you don't have a, a big store of protein over the course of days, you know, and, and you burn extra protein for energy. Um, carbs is similar. Fat sticks around. Um, when you turn over your fat stores in your body by eating different types of fat than you did last year, you're not going to see a result right away. It's going to take months or years. So um, if for years you were following the eat very little fat prescription and then you start eating a lot of omega-3s and now you're figuring out that maybe too much omega-3s is bad because they're fragile and they might get oxidized, and you're changing things, then it's going to be a long time before you see changes, if any. And there also aren't studies on this because people, researchers don't get funding for types of fatty acids and pain. It's just a very specific topic that people haven't researched much. But if I was to, you know, write a website or a book about um, what you should think about for nutrition and chronic pain, I'd say fat is way up there. Um, And then other things would be, there are a lot of people who get worse pain because of particular things that they eat and they've just never done a real elimination diet. So um, it's interesting. I both like making fun of people who don't eat certain things and uh, making fun of people who make fun of people who don't eat certain things. And the number one thing is gluten. You know, um, I, there's a, I don't know for sure, but I would say people who are darker typically have a lower prevalence of gluten intolerant. And I can say that because I'm darker. So like Indian people, for example, I, I think people in the Middle East, uh, in India, near the equator, um, their ancestors got wheat earlier than people in Northern Europe. So people in nor- Northern Europe um, tend to possibly have more celiac and gluten intolerance, which is hard to measure. Uh, it might be because they just measure it more often or they might actually have it more. But um but going back, I'd say that, uh, you know, like I, I met somebody who was Indian who said that they were gluten intolerant and that they found out because they ate spaghetti and they had a, a, a really bad reaction over the course of a day or two. That doesn't mean that you're gluten intolerant or you have celiac. What it probably means is the salad you ate with your spaghetti had some bacteria on the spinach or lettuce. Um, it's much less likely that, you know, at a snap of your fingers, you're suddenly gluten intolerant. On the other hand, there's people who have had increasing joint pain over the course of years who have never tried to not eat gluten for more than a day or two, and they eat toast every day. So for that person, I think it's a no-brainer that you should try to not eat gluten for a week and see what happens because it's like easy money. You know, any low-hanging fruit you can see in your life for improving your health, take advantage of. And gluten is one of those. So no matter how much I make fun of gluten, it is low-hanging fruit. And if you have certain health conditions like a bad gut or bad joints, try not eating it for a while. 
Um, nightshades sometimes for some people is a trigger, but that is not a low hanging fruit uh, because the percentage of people who have joint pain from uh, nightshade sensitivity, I would probably guess is a lot lower, even though there haven't been randomized trials because there isn't really funding out there. So the nutrition chronic pain area is very complicated, but I think you can drive a lot of benefit from that, but you just have to be very uh, strict with what you do and not do a pretend elimination diet. Well, that's super interesting and lots of good practical stuff I think people can take and use immediately. I guess for my final question, I'd be interested in like, where's, where's the research going for you? Like what is exciting to you in, in directions that you see the research going maybe the next two, three, five years? So um, when I see uh, in, uh, in the research world, there's different types of review papers you can do. There's um, uh, meta-analysis, which numerically pools results of previous trials. There's a uh, regular um, narrative review, which is just writing about previous studies. There's a scoping review, which is kind of in between. And then there's um, papers about future research needs. So I had to write one of those one time for sleep apnea, which is not a nutrition topic, but um, that's when I, there's been certain times in my life that I've um, run across something and it, it's become a cornerstone of how I think. Uh, so just um, tangentially, like when I was a, a kid, unfortunately, I read um, Atlas Shrugged at a young age and I thought I was objectivist for for my childhood. And, um, you know, that, and then I, that got tempered when I started reading other things. But, um, you know, the next time that happened was when I was in college and I read economics and I, uh, I was a econ major and I started reading about marginal benefit. So that, that still sticks with me. What is the marginal benefit of doing something that incorporates the cost and the opportunity cost of what you could have been doing with that time? So skip ahead a few years later, and the third time that happened, the big time, was about research. Um, and it sort of melded the other two things as well. So um, so I'm trying to remember how, how specifically it came up. I think uh, I was looking at a review paper. I saw that um, sometimes you read a paper like in a crazy journal like Medical Hypothesis, which is maybe pseudo peer-reviewed, and the person doesn't write in a boring fashion. So it was one of the papers like that, and the paper brought to mind an episode of House that I had seen. Do you ever watch House, or have you ever seen House? Of course, so, yes. So I love House. Um, House is really smart. Maybe if you're a doctor and you hate it because it's not medically um, you know, accurate, then that's stupid because it's, it's a TV show. But I think it's really good because uh, they really... Uh, he fits things together that are unrelated and it's a Sherlock Holmes type of puzzle and it really does bring up interesting medical and health issues. So the review I was reading was talking about how the the body can, um, can uh, get out of control in certain ways like autoimmune reaction or um, a serotonin storm or something like that. So I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, you know, why does this, why is this sounding familiar? And it turned out it was an episode of House that I had seen a few years ago, a few years before that, where, um, you know, you know, House is shtick, right? So he's kind of a, a, an asshole and it might or might not be because he has chronic pain in his leg. And the way he got pain in his leg is because part of his leg died when he had a random accident, 
or something. He had a, a blood clot in his leg, maybe. And then um, in order to save, save his leg, they had to cut something out. And that's why he has a limp in pain. So um, that, that puts him in a bad mood, which is already a lesson. Uh, because when you have stuff like pain going on, you're often in a bad mood. And uh, it steals your time away. And it, it makes your gym lifts lower and probably contributes to bad body composition. But um, so in that episode, uh, angry patient shot him. He uh, went under surgery, and when he came out, he didn't have pain anymore. So reason he didn't have pain is because his boss slash lover, uh, Dr. Cuddy, who is in charge of the medical department, she uh, put him in a ketamine coma. So do you know what ketamine is? Yes. Um, yep. So it's it's on the World Health Organization's uh, you know must have drug list or whatever because it's. It, it's good for a lot of things, but it's used as a street uh, drug, a recreational drug, at least in North America. Uh, it's known as Special K. Actually, this sounds like I'm, I'm advocating for it. I'm not, but <laughs> it does have a, an interesting use, which is people with really bad pain condition called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, now called CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, um, they don't really have any recourse. It's the worst pain condition possible. Um, it starts randomly. You can have a surgery. You can break your ankle. You can even um, be scared of a, a injection, and and it starts after that. What happens is that after that, your uh, sympathetic nervous system goes uh, crazy, and it feeds forward instead of limiting its reaction, and the pain gets worse and worse. So somebody will have like an ankle that gets swollen, and then blue, and then their thigh gets swollen, and then spreads to the other leg eventually, and. The pain on the uh, research pain scale, the McGill pain index from 1 to 50, um, childbirth is something like a 24, and uh, this condition is at like a 42 out of 50. So it's really bad, and sometimes people get so bad that when they go outside, if they can get the energy to, a gust of wind really hurts. So if any condition warrants pain research, this is it. And it turns out that there's no way to prevent it that people knew of and there was no way to treat it, but uh, the but House's lover slash boss put him in a ketamine coma because there was anecdotal evidence of ketamine helping. And the reason why when he woke up, there was no pain is when you're in a ketamine coma, um, along with having hallucinations, ketamine works on your brain to possibly reset some things that are damaged. And people don't realize how much of health woes are from the brain having persistent changes, either because of what you eat or how you think or what medications you're taking or how little sleep you get, stress, what have you. Um, so that's why House didn't have um, pain. So I did some research. Um, it turns out that now there is possibly a way to prevent it, and it's not a fancy drug. It's vitamin C. So every podcast I ever do, I, I try to fit in, um, even if it's really tangential like this, that if you're having a joint surgery or if you have a bad injury at the gym or playing sports, take vitamin C, 500 milligrams or more for at least 30 days because that's what trials have shown might be able to prevent this condition, which you really don't want to have. So for a while, um, you know, I might mention it in a podcast, but I wouldn't tell people because I, I hate telling people what to do because um, even if I tell my mom, she won't listen. Uh, she She still sends me nutrition emails even though she knows I'm a nutrition and then um, if you tell somebody something, they'll think you're being a know-it-all, which you are, because just because you do research doesn't mean you know more than somebody else. They know more about their own body. But one time on Facebook, 
uh, an internet friend of mine, um, which is interesting because you probably have internet friends now too. They tend to listen to you because your internet friends like use the internet more and they'll read internet research. So this person said, I'm having more pain after this injury. Um, you know, I, I played tennis and I had ACL reconstruction and now I'm having more pain. It's like, oh, this looks like RSD CRPS, but you know, I don't want to comment on Facebook. I don't want to be that guy. So um, people were like, oh, you know, drink bone broth, you know, take the supplement, blah, blah, blah. Um, this person ended up getting RSD just randomly. And I felt like shit. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, I meant to tell you this before, but uh, vitamin C is something that you might be able to take. And then I'm not telling you to find ketamine on the street, but uh, ketamine is also a drug that could help, but there aren't many studies. Um, and then the person had a bad summer, but eventually got better, even though like half of people with that condition don't ever get better. So, um, so I made a vow to always mention it. And what's interesting is now a study just came out showing that vitamin C, uh, might've worked for, you know, wrist fractures, uh, for preventing RSD, but for something else, I don't remember what injury it didn't show benefit. So the evidence is, isn't even cut and dry on that, but, um, where I see things heading is very specific things for very specific people, whether it's something like uh, that for a specific injury or nutrigenomic. So for people who have a certain um, polymorphism, uh, vitamin B is metabolized in different ways. So you should take certain B vitamins and not take certain B vitamins. Or, you know, if you have a certain type of gut profile, then these are probiotics or prebiotics that might work. So that might be 10 or 20 years away from being commonplace, but um, I'd say keep your eye out for that kind of stuff because it's really cool. It might not always apply to you, but um, for stuff like the vitamin C thing, it could really be life-saving. So um, personally, like, I don't give a shit about carb research. Um, it's it's going to go on for many, many years. It'll never stop. There's going to be more and better studies, but I only read them because I have to. Um the things I like reading about are autoimmune disease, uh, mysterious conditions, because I know there's people out there, probably people that are listening who have a mysterious condition, an invisible illness that most of their friends don't know about, and their doctor just throws random medications at. So for those people, I'd say you might want to learn uh, what research is like and how to read research. Um, you know, email email me and we can talk about research because Mysterious conditions is where research can really, really help you. People who are trying to have a eight or twelve pack, research can help you maybe accelerate that. But um, I'm not as interested in that kind of stuff anymore. I think people who are suffering, uh, I feel a visceral connection to, and I, I want to talk to about their stuff because you know I've seen that in my own life and in my friends' lives, and um, and I one time did not help somebody who could have used help. So that's what I want to do. And that's the kind of research that I want to read about. Well, that is definitely a powerful purpose and mission. And certainly, as you say, much more resonant than uh, helping someone get to single digit body fat, uh, helping alleviate someone's pain, I think is sort of the reason that many of us are in this field. So I, I salute you for having such a great... And, you know, it's uh, getting down to single digit body fat is painful, just in a different way. So... Um, so for those people, you know, perspective is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. I, I have learned a lot, uh, enjoyed, your <laughs> enjoyed your analysis of House episode and uh, you know, just really benefited from this perspective. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. No, it's my pleasure. Um, you, you probably don't know, but I've been reading your stuff since almost the beginning, um, maybe two years after that. So I, I knew that you were well-read and that's why I felt okay being very tangential. <laughs> well, we get to talk about ketamine and we can do a whole other podcast on uh, hallucinogenic drugs or whatever. And, and Yeah, how we like can... <laughs> how to get street drugs and get high. <laughs> or what you should take with your ecstasy so your jaw doesn't clench so much or whatever, right? Yeah, it's all optimizing. <laughs> Better living through chemistry, everyone. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for taking the time today. Yep, no problem.